Welcome to Three Right Turns on the Swizz Bold Network. I'm your bi-weekly look at progressive causes from a conservative background and perspective. If you're listening for the first time as a liberal or leftist, I used to be a conservative and tried to do my outreach from that position, so that explains why I occasionally might make you piss blood. You should also really listen from the beginning. This isn't a current event show. It's designed to be a slowly building argument for my view of politics. Uh, but hey, it's a freeish internet. Listen to whatever crazy order you want to. But it's been a long time. Happy New Year. I hope everybody had a happy holiday. We almost got into a war. Now it seems like we're out of it. Me personally, I don't know why you'd want to go to war with Iran. By last count, I think the Iraq war cost $2.4 trillion. That's almost $10,000 for every... American. And if we did want to go to war, we currently have no director of national intelligence, no deputy director of national intelligence, no homeland security secretary or deputy secretary, no commissioner for the customs and border patrol. And at the time, no secretary of the Navy. But we finally got that position filled. Seems like important pieces of an executive branch. You'd want to be fully staffed and ready to go for war. But, you know, I'm just some guy on the Internet. But again, war didn't happen. Thank God. But this podcast is being released on Monday, January 20th, 2020. It's the observation in the United States of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Now, I'm sure everybody knows of King's history fighting for racial justice. And in episode two of Three Right Turns, Star Trek Republican, we also talked about his lesser known history of fighting for economic justice and democratic socialism. You're going to see a lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum in America writing things on social media and in newspaper articles and interviews on TV, deifying the man. And then a lot of those same people are going to go back to their jobs as politicians and implement policy and governance at complete odds with honoring his legacy. It's it's a real trip. Uh, to celebrate, I was going to discuss a Twitter thread by Dr. Rhea Boyd about her recent Lancet article about the concept of whiteness in America and how deadly it is, both to minorities and, paradoxically, to white people. It was brought to my attention late last week because a lot of people were, in my mind, misconstruing her words to paint her as advocating some sort of white genocide. Now, white genocide, if you don't know, is kind of a meme on the left, but a quite real fear on the right and I've been looking for kind of a jump-in point to talk about the subject of racism and racial relations in America, and it seemed to be really perfect for that. But I did not fully account for the effect an educated black woman having the temerity to discuss her work in an important peer-reviewed scientific medical journal on Twitter, of all places, would have. By the time I started working on my show notes uh, early this week, she had protected her Twitter account so that I couldn't view the thread anymore. Um, I requested to follow her so I could gain access to it, but uh, I don't know. Maybe she threw her cell phone in an incinerator. Maybe she took a look at my Twitter profile pic, which, you know, looks like me. And I'm having a giant Paul Giamatti head attached to a shop vac, snorting an enormous pile of powdered sugar off a giant mirror in front of a green screen. And she thought, yeah, not today, white boy. Which, you know, fair enough. When I last looked at her thread, there was like 500 people looking just like me calling her a fascist racist. So, hey, happy MLK Day. Uh, but next time, I want to talk about that for sure. Um, I have since had time to go through the Lancet article itself and uh, make some notes. I didn't have time to fully develop my thoughts for that. But next time, for sure. I'd even love to have uh, uh, the good doctor on uh, the podcast to make sure I get it right. But I know her time is valuable and limited, so, so we'll see if we can make that happen. 
Barring that, I said on the pre-Christmas feedback episode that I might talk about my history and involvement in the founding of the website, redstate.com. So that's what I'm going to fall back on because it touches on a lot of things I talk, like to talk about, uh, de-radicalization, uh, not being uh, of a reactionary mindset, uh, my former life as a conservative. It's kind of got a little bit of everything. But first, I want to announce one of the ways we are planning to fund our operations here at SwizzBold. Uh, the ever-popular Patreon option. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but if you go to patreon.org slash swizzbold, you can check out the full pitch. Short version is you give us money to make these podcasts, and you get ad-free feeds, exclusive Mr. rogers theme flair on our subreddit r slash swizzbold, and access to a monthly live stream video where Cecily, me, and Jim will sit around and talk about life and politics or whatever the Patreons want to hear us talk about. Back when I started Bald Move with Jim, uh, when we went live with our club, we said it was up to you to see if this thing sinks or swims. And this is the same kind of deal. If you see the value in three right turns uh, and what we do in the SwizzBold network and you can afford it, please help us out. That will help us direct more time and energy to this outlet. And if you don't, we won't have that support. And eventually, I'll say my piece on a few topics that I've wanted to get off my chest for a long time. And then we'll just mothball the SwizzBold project. It's up to you. I'm just as happy to have a small, like-minded audience hear me out on a few things, uh, share some back and forth, and then exit the stage as I am to see this grow and expand. Hell, honestly, the idea of this thing taking off is kind of scary in this day of age. I don't know if you've seen the kind of shit you can get for being open and honest with your political opinions on the internet now, but it's pretty brutal. And as much as the right loves to talk about free speech and freedom of expression, they do seem to run pretty effective mobs with pitchforks and torches out. Anyway, patreon.com slash swizzbold is the link. And we very much appreciate your support. Our first live show, uh, Patreon only live show is in February. So maybe hustle up if you want in on that. And especially if you want to submit feedback for it. Okay. Once upon a time, I had a hand in creating redstate.com and nobody except for me and maybe two or three other people on this planet know about it. And I I bet I'm the only one that remembers. I want to hearken back to the early 2000s. I was still a fundamentalist Christian in a cult. America had just survived the Clinton presidency including a bitterly divisive impeachment process that began with an investigation of the Clintons' possible wrongdoing in a real estate development deal and misuse of FBI files and ended up with him being charged for lying about getting a blowjob. And let me take this opportunity to throw a little red meat to my conservative fans. Uh, I, I hate Bill Clinton. I just hated him straight up back in the day. And now that I'm a progressive and I look back and I think, yeah, I I still hate him. Aside from the personal stuff, which Bill Clinton, at the very least, was a sex pest. In all probability, he was a repeat sexual harasser, if not assaulter, and he definitely used his power to conceal and tear down the women, rightfully accusing him and wanting justice. He's also friends with Jeffrey Epstein, which just the association is gross, but the implications are pretty goddamn crazy. I'm not calling Bill Clinton a pedo, But I am asking everyone listening that if you had to bet your life on whether Bill Clinton, if offered a young girl with no documentation on some private island hideout where he's absolutely sure that he would not get caught, how many of you take that bet? 
And I'm not saying he should be in jail. I'm not saying he runs an underground sex pizza dungeon. I'm definitely not saying what, if any, reflection these facts should have on his wife, Hillary. But I do find it offensive and embarrassing that he's still seen as a celebrity in Democratic circles. Honestly, he'd be a pariah in Hollywood with this record. But in Washington, it's just gross. And we haven't even gotten to his politics, which we're going to. Okay. Back to the narrative. Following this, we had a long and divisive campaign between George Bush and Al Gore that ended up with Bush being elected president when the Supreme Court shut down a recount process in a pivotal battleground state of Florida. Bush became president by winning Florida by about 500 votes, while Gore won the popular vote by over a half million votes. Then 9-11 happened and the country became engulfed in this heated debate about what military action should be best undertaken to get justice for the victims of that terrorist attack and keep us Americans safe. Meanwhile, I'm a Jehovah's Witness who had vowed to take no part in earthly politics. But I think you can tell from this podcast and my personal history that that was hard for me. I might not vote, sure, but asking me to not like pay attention to politics or have an opinion on politics, that was always a really tough sell for me. So not having friends or family that were safe to discuss politics with, I turned to the news. At first, I was an avid NPR fan, but after the 2000 election and in the lead up to the war, I was just really irritated by the fact that all my favorite programs like Talk of the Nation and the Diane Ream Show had apparently been taken over by lunatics. Gone were the days of nuanced discussion about tough political topics of the day, and here were the days of callers screaming about the commander and thief and the fascist Bush presidency, and Bush looks like a chimp, and he talked like... Honestly, George Bush talks a lot like me. I'm not sure if you've picked up on my malapropisms, my difficulty in pronouncing aiding words correctly, but whatever kind of brain damage W has, I have the same kind. So... I always kind of had a soft spot for him and gave him the benefit of the doubt on on matters of intelligence. But anyway, I tried conservative talk radio uh, like Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Neil Bortz, and I found that they certainly told me things that I was inclined to agree with. But I'd constantly catching them minimizing things that just didn't look good from their perspective or outright making things up about it or just not talking about it at all. I found Fox News better. I thought CNN was garbage, like a less thoughtful, worse reported version of NPR or PBS. And goddamn, I thought, is it too much to ask for people to think, to fucking reason, to leave emotion at the door and try to figure out what's true and consider several possible perspectives and then decide what to do from that point? So increasingly, the internet went from something that I just played games on and occasionally secretly looked at porn on uh, to something I started getting my news from. I was really heavily involved in some of the early forerunners of Reddit, like the technical sites Slashdot and Corrosion. Uh, And at this point, it was in the very early days of the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And I remember clearly the topic du jour was some U.S. troops had killed a cameraman And people on the left were screaming that this was a major humanitarian disaster. And people on the right were screaming that it's war. What the hell do you expect to happen? And I remember seeing this article from a small site called Tacitus.org. Now, Tacitus, the historical figure, 
was a Roman living in the first and second century. He's widely considered to be one of the great historians of his age. He wrote extensively about the rule of emperors Tiberius, Claudius, and Nero, the latter of which, of course, famously, most likely fictitiously, fiddled while Rome itself burned. Tacitus the blogger featured a marble bust of Tacitus the Roman on his site up in the masthead. And there's a quote right next to it that went something like uh, chronicling the burning of the empire. I, I went back to the Wayback Machine to try to get actual pictures and stuff of this, but site's been excluded from the archive. I don't know what to tell you. Now, the way I just described this blog uh, laid out seems, I feel like at this point, like a self-parody of like a right-wing blog or YouTube channel. But that back then, whoo, that felt like some heady intellectual stuff. I think we spent about three days on post-World War II American history and like an entire year on studying Roman history. So that really felt important and relatable. Uh, but this article on Tacitus.org was very simple. It featured an animated GIF or GIF if you're a degenerate that quickly rotated between the profile of a war journalist in like a flak jacket and a helmet, the kind that we saw them wearing on the news on a daily basis back then, with a camera hefted up on his shoulder, ready to film some atrocity. And then you saw the profiles of soldiers with various RPG and portable anti-tank and anti-material rocket launching systems, and those things rotated back and forth, like you know, uh, a quarter, less than a quarter, maybe a tenth of a second in between them. And the title of the post was something like identify the threat and the body of the post below the image is you have a fraction of a second to decide and if you bet wrong, you and all your friends die. And I remember thinking that that was really effective because it offered this new perspective, this soldier's perspective on the issue. It was different from what I saw as the hyperbole of the U.S. is deliberately targeting journalists because they don't want people to see the truth. And not as dismissive as, like, war is hell if shit happens. Like, if I was in a hypothetical band of brothers with some rifle at hand and I'm tense and I'm walking through a war zone and I turn the corner and face that, well, what would I do? I could see shooting the guy and I don't know that I'd want to consider that a war crime. So I began to read more and more of this Tacitus guy's work. Uh, again, the blogger, not the Roman. And the more I learned about him, the more impressed I became. He was really well-spoken, intelligent, principled, a former army officer who had served overseas, which, you know, actual experience in the military is certainly appealing when you're looking for a war blogger. Uh, he was pro-life, which at the time I was too, but without a lot of the typical hypocrisy that I saw in the pro-life movement. He opposed uh, euthanasia and abortion, of course, but he was also very active in the death penalty protest circuit, which put him at odds with a lot of right-wingers. He also didn't dismiss the missteps and scandals of the current Republican administration and spent at least as much time criticizing the war effort from this kind of, I don't know, warrior philosopher's perspective as he did criticizing anything that the liberals or leftists did. And I found that to be a real breath of fresh air. And since, you know, Terry Gross was a goddamn bleeding heart liberal, it's just what I was looking for. So I like this Tacitus guy. And he built up a lot of trust in my eyes. And at some point, he ran into some technical problems with his blogging software, uh, uh, where I, I forget exactly what was happening. He's featuring some suffering from slowdowns and some corruption and who knows what. But he's talking about getting something new that would support threaded comments and some kind of community platform with user edit articles that could be up and downvoted. Hot damn, thought I. 
This is my chance to shine. I'm a software developer, and for the past year or so, I've been playing around with some of the more popular content management systems like Scoop, which is what ran the aforementioned tech site Corrosion. It's also the software that this liberal democratic site Daily Cost ran, which you might be familiar with that. Uh, and Tacitus had this kind of rivalry of sorts with the founder of that site. Uh, both of them were ex-military officers. Both of them started off as war bloggers, uh, cost stumping for the liberal side and Tacitus for the conservatives. And I've been fooling around with this code and I had it running on some of my project boxes. So I emailed him with the proposition that if he would give me a dump of his current site content and I'd walk him through that process, I'd scoopify it on one of my demo boxes. And if he liked the result, I'd help him install it on a server and then he'd keep it. Now, he agreed, and this sparked kind of a short-lived friendship of sorts, where I'd show him the progress, uh, he would offer some feedback on it, uh, we'd talk about the issues of the day, and occasionally he would share some kind of private insights or wisdom with me in the course of the conversations. Uh, at one point, he told me about the concept of the Overton window, which has really shaped my political thought over the past years. And since these days, a lot has been written and misunderstood about the term Overton window. Uh, here's my takeaway. Joseph Overton was a senior member of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, a conservative, libertarian-leaning think tank that advocates for lower taxes, deregulation, school choice, pretty typical conservative platforms. His insight was that enacting public policy wasn't as simple as electing officials sympathetic to your goals, but you had to work to shift the public opinion to create politically favorable environments for policy change. Now, I don't have all the old emails and correspondence with Mr. Trevino handy, but I do have a link to a 2006 blog post on this Daily Cost site, which uh, covers similar ground. It was a correspondence with him and the author of that piece, uh, and I'm linking it in the show notes because I think it's fascinating. It's really funny uh, and informative to view the comments and the reaction to this information back in the day. But to put it most simply, the Overton window is a tool to discover political possibilities and how to maneuver public opinion to create new ones. Let's use a real example. Let's say that you identify that long term public education is an enemy of conservatism because liberal thought dominates, among other things, history, because historians concern themselves with finding the truth about the past, and the truth about the past of things like the North Atlantic slave trade, the treatment of natives by colonizers, and American involvement in the democratic processes of Central and South America is pretty ugly. This is what conservatives are getting at when they say that students nowadays are taught to hate America. Now, I find this bizarre and always have, even when I was a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, because I've recognized all of this ugly American history and still find myself proud to be an American. We can do a lot better, sure, and kick me if I ever say otherwise, but one of the things I find amazing about the place is just how fucked up and evil the circumstances of its birth and early development are, and yet all the incredible progress we've made. We're on the leading edge of integration and diversity and tolerance where a lot of countries haven't even had to get started. And we shouldn't use that as an excuse to kind of sit on our asses and smug judgment of the rest of the world like I see a lot of times, but it's still worth noting. The work we're doing is very hard and we're still here doing it, trying to have the America, the country, live up to America, the ideal. And I see a lot of value in that. So... 
I'm dubious about this teaching America's youth to hate their own country stuff. On the other hand, if American citizens were taught the unvarnished truth about our past, they might not wholeheartedly support more imperialism around the globe or more adventures in Latin America. People that understand history, you see, are less likely to be doomed to repeat it. That's how, how it goes. It just so happens that exploiting less developed countries for their labor and resources is a key to enabling Western consumerism and maximizing our economy. So I don't know. It seems like there's a real conflict of interest here. But if you're Joe Overton, you've identified these trends in public education as hostile to your preferred goals. Reversing these trends is seemingly impossible because you can't look and find educators to endorse like lying to children. And these educators are the ones setting the standard curriculum because why the fuck wouldn't you let professional academics set the standards for education? But you also can't just put a bunch of money behind a candidate running on a burn to public schools to ground platform because the post-World War II generation and their kids went to effective public school systems. They went in large numbers to university and themselves were too educated and smart to fall for that kind of shit. So what do you do? Enter Overton and his window. The first step is you draw a continuum and you label one end as more free and you label the other end as less free. Now, imagine a set of possible political thought that lies between these two ends of the spectrum. At each end, you have a set of thought that is unthinkable from a public policy perspective. Moving towards the center, you have ideas that are radical, acceptable, sensible, popular, until finally at the very center of this continuum, you have current public policy that everybody, you know, it's the law of the land. So let's look at this through the lens of public education. Starting from your ideal, from the Mackinac Center public policy standpoint, you have maximum freedom, no government involvement in education, a.k.a. burn down public education. This is the radical position. This is the unthinkable position. Moving towards the center, you have all schools are private with minimal government regulation, uh, a voucher system with public schools closer to the middle. You have tuition tax credits with public schools, uh, making homeschooling legal, uh, restricting private schools and now you're getting into the, the 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 less free side of the spectrum making homeschooling illegal private schools illegal uh to the point where you take children from their parents as babies and you indoctrinate them as wards of the state uh this is the radical less freedom position now it's important to note that you don't have to agree with the framing of this okay it's irrelevant uh, abolition of public education would not, to put it mildly, allow for a free citizenry. It would allow for more easily to control population. But, you know, I've digressed enough on this podcast. You can label the axis as more hellscape and less hellscape if you want. It, it doesn't really matter. Back when Joe was working on public policy, homeschooling was illegal in the, the late 60s, early 70s, and private schooling was heavily restricted. Homeschooling was heavily stigmatized at the social level, and private schools were seen as very snobby. However, these are forms of education attractive to conservative policymakers because they're more free of government oversight and regulation. Those pesky educators and their standards and ideals of factual understanding can't interfere with their agenda in these places. Now, we look at the landscape in 2020, current year, it looks a lot different, doesn't it? The teachers' unions have been gutted, homeschooling is legal and commonplace, 
uh, relatively speaking. Very little social stigma, not nearly as much as there used to be. There's talk of disbanding the Department of... Um, now, talk of disbanding the Department of Education is still seen as radical, but it's no longer unthinkable. You hear people advocate for that uh, in polite society all the time. How did they accomplish this profound sea change? It's going to sound crazy when I tell you, but they did it by advocating publicly for the unthinkable and the radical. Not in some unorganized way, but in a very deliberate bad cop slash good cop way. So first you get some reactionaries whipped up and you have them go out and demonize public education. Say it's perverting our nation's youth, that it's an obscene waste of taxpayer money. You get people in entrenched conservative areas to cut funding to education, then cite the failing state of schools as evidence that the mission is misguided. These are all unpopular opinions and they usually pay a political price for advocating them. They don't tend to win elections. When they do, it's, it's a bonus, but it's not necessarily part of the grand plan. But then comes the good cop, and they'll say, look, nobody is seriously saying we should disband public education, okay? But the fact is, our schools are falling behind, and parents have every right to be concerned. Schools are full of drugs and teenage pregnancy. If a parent wants to keep their kid home and educate them on their own, with approved curriculum, of course, and with appropriate supervision and testing, who's to say that's so bad? Who is better to decide how and at what pace a child should learn than their own parents who care more for them than anyone? Why should a parent be forced to send their kid to a failing school just because they happen to live there? Wealthy parents send their kids to private schools. What if parents could keep their tax money and spend it on a private school instead of futilely shoving money into a failing system? Then on the other side, you have Democrats saying, look, basically everything's fine, but the schools need more money. We need to raise taxes to keep up with modern demands of education. But there's nobody advocating for the state to forcibly take kids away to re-education camps. Nobody's talking about outlawing Catholic school. So the general public starts to see a position that was previously unacceptable or radical as an acceptable part of the political discourse. Hell, it even kind of seems sensible. It appeals to people's bias to go with a middle position when presented with two opposing options. This works not because of people's stupidity uh, or ignorance, although that's, that certainly helps things along, but it's, it's a well-understood principle in human social psychology. It's called the door-in-the-face approach as opposed to like the foot-in-the-door. Uh, foot-in-the-door, you make a very small request of someone's time or money, and when they agree, you slowly ramp up the commitment of them and the investment of time and materials, and each individual step uh, seems reasonable, and they can. They, it's awkward to say no when they said yes before, so you get them to go along. Uh, the door-in-the-face technique is kind of the opposite, where you get them all worked up and outraged about a massive request of their time or resources, and then you hit them with a smaller one, and make them feel like an asshole for refusing that after they've already kind of gotten outraged by the first one. So here's a classic example from a 1975 study called Reciprocal Concessions Procedure for Inducing Compliance, the door and face technique. I'll include a site of this uh, in the show notes, but briefly, let me read from the synopsis on Wikipedia. Researchers separated participants into three groups. In group one, experimenters asked participants to volunteer to counsel juvenile delinquents for two hours a week for two years. Uh, parenthetically, this is a large request. After they refused, the group was then asked to chaperone juvenile delinquents on a one-day trip to the zoo, which is seen as a smaller, more reasonable request. The second group was only given the small request. 
In group three, the experimenter described the larger quest, said, hey, this is something we're thinking about, but in the end, only asked an individual participant if they would be willing to perform the small request. 50%, half of the first group, agreed to the small request, compared to just 17% in group two and 25% in group three. Because compliance for the small request was significantly larger... For group one and group two, the door and the face technique was deemed successful. Compliance for the small request was also significantly larger for group one than group three, which demonstrates that mere exposure to the more extreme task does not affect compliance as significantly. So if voters are presented with an option to disband or defund the public education, these measures are roundly voted down. But the next election cycle, the new wave says, okay, okay, we all agree that this last bunch was talking crazy. Here's the sensible version of that plan, and our opponents want to stay the course, and they win. It's that simple. The studies show that 50% of any given population is susceptible to these approaches. It's not because, again, they're weak-minded or ignorant. It's just basic human psychology. We want to be helpful. We want to build consensus with our fellow men and women. We want to get along and solve problems. When you understand that, you can manipulate that psychology to your benefit. So going back to our school example, what's really happening? Well, instead of fixing schools, you've got vouchers that take money out of the public school system and diverts them to private and religious institutions. The poor, who can't afford to move or transport their kids, are stuck in a dying system with ever-shrinking budgets and less effective schooling. They're burning down the public schools without ever having to light a match, and reasonable, thoughtful people have aided and abetted them the entire time. Now, There's nothing to say that liberals and leftists can't use these same things to their benefit, but it doesn't seem like they do. First off, there's not nearly as many national think tanks espousing liberal and leftist thought and seriously considering how they can effectively influence the citizenry. Uh, I I know that's like the big meme on the right, that the Soros's and the uh, Buffets of the world are funding all these fake grass, but it's just their money's not there. And if I'm being honest... We do have academia and Hollywood, which kind of function within those roles uh, for liberals in our society, not again because of any kind of vast left-wing conspiracy, but because proper understanding of science and history often, but not always, supports liberal and leftist thought, and finding new and novel stories and points of view is a passion for the arts, and that tends to build empathy, and it's hard to hate gay people if you've just seen a movie that made you cry about the plight of gay people. But we certainly don't have the kind of regional and state-level think tanks like the Mackinac Center for Public Policy doing this kind of work. Now, instead, let's talk about Bill fucking Clinton and why I hate him and think he was bad for our country in the long term. If you know anything about Bill Clinton, his political philosophy was about finding the political center and triangulation of policies that would appease their liberal and blue-collar working base while still attracting moderates and centrists. This policy was formed because there was a very real fear that Democrats would never win a national election. The last guy, Jimmy Carter, a genuine principled Christian who did asinine things like establish the evil Department of Education, install solar-powered hot water heaters in the White House, and tried to treat Americans like adults on economic environmental realities. Turns out, Americans would vastly prefer a happy warrior type like Ronald Reagan telling us that it's morning in America, and there's a new dawn of economic growth and prosperity achieved by renouncing the ideals of liberalism. 
Anyway, the thinking at the Democratic National Committee was to stop this wholesale slide and perpetual conservatism that they need to walk back towards the middle of American politics while still trying to placate their traditional liberal base. Now, do you see the problem with this approach, which was gaining ascendancy just as the conservative think tanks had identified the power and utility of manipulating the Overton window? On the conservative side, you had radicals in the form of Christian theocrats, old school cold warriors, and other reactionaries advocating for overturning Roe versus Wade, deregulating industries and public works, using our muscular military capabilities to spread freedom and democracy across the globe. At the same time, the conservative establishment played good cop with sensible economic reforms, rolling back entitlement programs, and letting the free market efficiencies replace slow and outdated government bureaucracies. On the liberal side, you had a white southerner playing footsie with racist politics by denouncing obscure rap artists, rolling back welfare protections, doubling down on the war on drugs and the war on crime that led to record numbers of people in prison. These people, by the way, who are no longer allowed to vote that are disproportionately affected uh, in minority populations. He's promoting and advancing free trade policies like NAFTA that would destroy manufacturing jobs that were already under a lot of pressure and prioritizing balanced budgets and lower taxes over the health and well-being of its citizens. What few liberal and leftist policies that Clinton tried to promote, such as public health care, something the rest of the free world had had successfully put in place for at least a generation, they abandoned under political pressure, fights we're still, of course, having to this very day. Self-conscious about his record dodging the Vietnam draft and writing back in his college days that he loathed the military, Clinton followed this haphazard foreign policy where he vacillated between extremes of intervention and non-action, where trying to save lives in a Somalia ended up in U.S. servicemen's bodies being paraded around in the streets, which led us then abandoning the Rwandans to genocide. He also tried to split the middle on other civil rights issues of his day, betraying the gay citizenry by signing repressive legislation like Don't Ask, Don't Tell for military service and the Defense of Marriage Act. In case after case, the conservatives and Republicans were moving the Overton window into their direction and Democrats in response walked toward the middle to win elections which, of course, just made the Overton window slide to the right faster. Now, this isn't to say that I disagreed with everything the Clintons did. Uh, I'm a pretty big advocate for free trade myself. After all, in this kind of hopeful Star Trek-style future that I advocate for, it seems likely that the globe will be united in governance and the economy, and I think these are kind of good early steps in that direction. There's a lot of positives to it. But, A... This is also a very friendly position from a conservative point of view, from a big business point of view. And B, these trade agreements also had very well-known, easy-to-predict effects to the common worker and the status of lower and middle-class Americans, and we did nothing to prepare or blunt those effects. So now we're in 2020, where for most of my living memory, Democratic politicians have essentially been somewhat socially liberal Republicans. They're routinely and effectively denounced, even so, as heathen degenerate socialists, which is why I get so frustrated by people who decry the problems of politics as a both sides issue. Because we don't have both sides. We have a center that's barely holding and then the right wing. Now, I think this goes a long way to explain why we have a lot of political apathy in our country. 
because there's no representation for true leftist politics. This is also why, despite myself being skeptical of wide-scale pervasive implementations of socialist and communist policy, I want to shift the window so I talk about those things. Even though I think they're wrongheaded and bad optically, I actually value the part that leftist radicals play in political discourse. I think flying like the hammer and sickle uh, and memeing about eating the rich is foolish and kind of sick, but also I appreciate that it lets people like myself and the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warrens of the world play the good cop. Like, consider the viewpoint of a centrist baby boomer. To them, these online socialist communist LARPers are like unthinkable, crazy town. Bernie Sanders is radical. Elizabeth Warren is perhaps acceptable. Joe Biden is sensible in terms of Overton window options. So we elect Joe Biden, and he defeats Trump, and he's painted by the right as an evil socialist, of course. And his centrist triangulating policies that he's already telegraphed having get further watered down by his reaching across the aisle towards his his friends on the other side. And these policies get defeated by Republican-controlled Senate led by the chief undertaker of all progressive legislation, Mitch McConnell. And uh, Diamond Joe is seen as ineffective and weak. And the economy eventually cools off because it will. It absolutely will. And if a Democrat is in charge when this perfectly natural and normal cycle of our capitalist economy happens, they'll be blamed for it. And a good cop Republican then runs on lightly repudiating the worst aspects of the Trump administration. And Americans that are fed up with yet another Democratic failure of overpromise and underdelivery, they win a tightly contested election that pivots around gerrymandering in a few swing states. And I honestly don't even know how a good cop they have to be to Trump's bad cop because Trump's moved the Overton window so far to the right on so many things that I thought were unthinkable just a few years ago, and now they're kind of mainstream. So do those of us in the center and left of American politics have the stomach or the political will to vote in the primaries a supposed radical like a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren? Will we have the stomach to support even more radical candidates in the future? Are we willing to lose elections to shift the Overton window to create these political possibilities? And the thing is, it's asking a lot for a lot of different reasons. The lives of women and minorities and our children's future are at stake. Maintaining the status quo or slowing the slide to conservatism seems very attractive against letting conservatives maintain all the levers of power at the national level just because we want to push back against this window in hopes of an eventual advancement. Do we even have time to spend a decade in a political wilderness making the radical appear sensible while the planet's slowly boiling and, and wealth concentrates more and more into ever fewer and fewer hands? While voting rights keep getting restricted, gerrymandering continues unabated, and the Supreme Court tilts ever more conservative for an entire generation. While abortions effectively outlawed in half the states in the Union and our prison populations continue to swell. I don't know. Is it crazy to think that we can do both? And I think a lot of this is how you frame your point of view. Like, I know where I stand in American politics, and it's firmly in the radical camp, right? From a global, and I think, you know, flatter myself to think from a factual standpoint, I think that's silly. But an honest appraisal of where I'm at and where the Overton window is clearly shows that I'm in a radical position. But a lot has been made recently of some reports that uh, show a worrying amount of Bernie Sanders supporters in 2016 either did not vote in a general election or they voted for Trump. 
In fact, there are certain Bernie supporters right now who are kind of half joking, maybe half serious, saying something along the lines of, that's right, we're crazy sons of bitches, and we'll do it again, too. If Bernie doesn't make it, we're staying home. Hell, we might even vote for Trump. So the only pragmatic solution is to nominate Bernie. They're trying to do a one-man Overton window swing. And it's either political, hostage-taking, or it's trolling, I don't know, depending on how you judge the seriousness of the so-called threat. But I didn't see it that way as a Bernie supporter in 2016. Bernie was very radical that year. And yet so much of his policy, seemingly unthinkable at the time, has been adopted by establishment Democrats as a de facto policy platform. It seems somewhat radical within the Democratic Party to not support some form of public health care, for example. And that's real progress if they stick to it. That's a real shifting of the Overton window. And not just in the Democratic Party, but there's lots of polling polling that suggests a lot of this platform has broad political support in the population. Looking at it from this point of view, Bernie didn't fail at all. He succeeded. And now the crazy guy's back again. If he's defeated in the primaries, those that love him on the left, can they support the sensible, popular candidate, which is sensible and popular under the newly shifted Overton window, while continuing to advocate for the unthinkable and the radical and the continuing to shift the window and to help us stem the bleeding? I don't know, because I don't know what people's long-term goals versus short-term goals in politics, how patient people are winning, how much they think that we're in a dire circumstance, and it's, it's different for everybody, right? But what I do know is that properly understanding this window and where your policies and beliefs are on the spectrum is key to understanding what is politically possible, what is advantageous, and avoiding political despair. Because the conservatives, when they see a defeat that moves the Overton window, they see it as a strategic victory. But in the last 30 years, all I see is liberals seeing defeat. They run to the center to try to avoid the next one. And like I said before, I think our extremely low turnout in voting by other democracies' standards is kind of a glimmer of hope for us. Because if you think turnout in like the high 40s and low 50s is bad, which is kind of where we are at any given election, you should take a look at the primary turnouts. There's a chance that if we get our base motivated, if we confront our family, our friends, our neighbors in the arena of political debate, if we donate money to candidates that need our support, that we can turn this around. I mean, if we activate a fraction of the non-voting population, we absolutely can do this. Just think about how narrow the victories have been for Republicans in the past several federal elections. Just like 500 votes in Florida for the 2000 election. Just a few thousand votes in a few key Midwestern states in the 2016 election. Think of how few minds we'd have to change in the aggregate to make real progress here. We're talking such small numbers. But we need to hold our actual politicians to account. We've got to write them letters. We've got to show up at their offices. We've got to demonstrate in the streets. When, when, when the radical and unthinkable options lose, these are the ways we can still push that Overton window in the direction we want it to. But most importantly, you, you have to vote. you got to vote in the primaries. They're just around the corner. Are you registered? Are you sure you're registered? Do you know that millions of people have been deleted from the voting rolls in the past few years? Do you know the ID requirements in your state? Get used to this. I'm going to be talking about it like every month. Do you know your rights and what to do if you're challenged the polls or denied a vote? I recommend checking in advance of every election. Go to either vote.org or vote411.org. 
And you're, of course, going to vote in every election, right? Not just for 2020, of course, but the primaries, the off-year elections, the purely local ones, you're going to get yourself, spend the half day or so informing yourself of the candidates and going to the, the, the polls and voting, right? Because the conservatives understand the rules and how to manipulate them, which is why they're able to hold on to power despite being a minority in just purely numerical terms. And I know there's some states where a lot of this doesn't apply. Like you've got such a huge deficit that it's not going to matter. And, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you other than, you know, try, try to try to work your street, try to work your neighborhood, try to work your family. Uh, but there's a lot of key states where you can make a real difference and you got to get out there and you got to vote. And even the ones where you're a hopeless case at the state level or federal level, absolutely. You can make a difference at the local level and try to take back this country one county at a time, one district at a time. So don't be taken advantage of. Check your voter status right now while you still have time to do something about it because in a couple months, you're going to miss the primaries, and a couple months after that, you're going to be ineligible to vote, and then you're going to be thinking about what if, what if. We also have to change our culture while we're talking about it. Politics can't be something that isn't discussed in polite society. Who the fuck benefits from this policy? Ask your friends if they're registered to vote. Do they know about the upcoming election? The cutoff dates for your state? Are you afraid to bring this up once in a while? Why? Who does it benefit? If it starts a difficult conversation, then that's a difficult conversation you needed to have. Why is it seen in our culture uh, as an invasion of privacy to know how much our coworkers and our bosses make in the companies we work for? Who does that benefit? I know it's uncomfortable. It's seen as tacky. But who is it really benefiting? We have to start paying attention to politics again. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing that. But then we can't ever, ever stop, especially when things get to good again, if they get to good again. Because when you take your eye off the ball, the last 30 years of politics happens. And lastly, I think we should all support leftist outlets and resources that you think are valuable, like this one. If you have learned something from the work we're doing at SwizzBold, we'd really appreciate your support. There's a link to patreon.org slash SwizzBold on like every page on SwizzBold. Uh, it's easy to remember, patreon.org slash SwizzBold. I'm never giving up on politics. I think you can tell by my history. It's gotten me in trouble with God. It's gotten me in trouble with relationships and friendships. It's gotten me in a lot of trouble over to my other gig at baldmove.com. I'm always going to fight the good fight. Hell, I might even try my hand in actual politics in a few years when I got my, my kid raised and out of the house. But it does take a lot of time and attention to do this show, and I take a lot of heat for it. And if it's not seen as useful, then I can redirect that time and attention to other areas of my life and my work. So I've told you my plan, and I've said it from the beginning that you know I've got a few things I want to say about my own political, personal experiences, and when I've said it, uh, people either find it valuable and they'll support it and we can expand and do more or I can just go back and reinvest this time into my day job back at Bald Move. It's up to you guys and gals and no hard feelings either way. There's a lot of voices out there that deserve support. A lot of them more than I do. So, you know, I get it. One final note before we get to feedback. Remember Josh Trevino, the, the Tacitus guy that we last left in our story with me sitting at his feet receiving the wisdom of the Overton window? Well, when I was working on a Tacitus 2.0, he was discussing the project with some of his friends in conservative circles, and it turns out that a few of them had some money behind them. They wanted to pour it into the project, and it was being conceived as a kind of conservative counterpoint to that daily cost site that I'd mentioned. It's going to be called redstate.com, and it's supposed to be a reasoned, thoughtful site in the style of tacitus.org. 
that engaged in no-nonsense advocacy and apology for conservative viewpoints. And I was super excited because I thought, this is cool. I might get on the ground floor of this opportunity, do some development work, make a little bit of money, do some political good. So I started converting Tacitus 2.0 into Red State Alpha. But soon, when these moneyed guys got involved, I found myself being distanced from the project. First, they wanted to abandon the Scoop software precisely because it was the backbone of this popular leftist-site daily costs. They wanted to develop their own code that wasn't dependent on quote-unquote liberal software. Now, as an open-source free software advocate myself at the time, this didn't make any sense to me because you're just wasting tons of money replicating daily costs' wheel, and it just showed a profound misunderstanding of how open software works. But they had new developers and firms that were pushing them uh, towards solutions that they wanted to push. Uh, They're the ones that had the money. They didn't know me. They knew these people. So I found myself kind of boxed out. And then they brought in Republican operatives like Ben Dominic and Eric Erickson, both of which you might be familiar with. Uh, And they're certainly interesting individuals in their own right if you want to Google up on their history. But even then, in my conservative mind back then, I could see what these guys were doing and twisting the project and they were going in the opposite direction of which what I was interested in which is getting down to the goddamn truth and sure enough red state turned out to be a political hack site I was gratified to see them maintain a never Trump stance uh, probably because Donald Trump and Eric Erickson got into personal scuffle back in the 2016 campaign but sure enough uh, about a year after his election they abandoned that last of principles and now they're just fully into Looney Tunes at town. And my brief friend, Josh Trevino, last I heard of him, he was accused of paying several young journalists up to $36,000 a piece by the Malaysian government to write pro-regime propaganda released in several outlets, such as the Huffington Post, San Francisco Examiner, Washington Times, National Review, and redstate.com. One of those people who took the money was the previously mentioned Ben Dominic, which explains the Red State connection, Uh, Josh denied this for years until The Guardian fired him as a writer for failing to disclose these ties to the Malaysian government and how his writing was impacted, after which a filing revealed that he was in fact paid nearly $400,000 for this work. Josh now works as the chief innovation officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, a nonpartisan research institute. Hmm... According to their website, their mission is promote and defend liberty, personal responsibility, and free enterprise, and the nation itself by educating and affecting policymakers in a Texas public policy debate with academically sound research and outreach. Hmm. Also, according to their about page, they are funded by thousands of individuals, foundations, and corporations. The foundation explicitly does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcomes of its research. Again, I say, hmm, I wonder which governments they're referring to. I mean, you can take your best guess at what Overton windows they're trying to move and what directions down there. But wait, we don't have to guess. Here are some points from their liberty in action agenda. Limit growth of state government and cut property taxes in half. Hmm, how are schools funded in America again? Property taxes, right? Quote-unquote, let markets lower energy costs and improve grid reliability. In state and local subsidies for all energy sources to promote a free enterprise approach to energy production and improve long-term reliability of the grid. 
translated gut funding to green technology. But of course, the fossil fuel industry in Texas isn't going to have to pay any additional fees to handle the carbon they're continually dumping in the air uh, because there's no apparent cost to dumping carbon into the atmosphere. They also want to prioritize American history, civics slash civics education for all Texans. I mean, that doesn't sound too bad, right? Uh, says the Texas legislature should restore the true extent of existing law that requires in universities and K through 12 schools the teaching of American history and government, not the weak substitute courses that have become commonplace. Similarly, the State Board of Education and University Regents should inform or reform our history and civics curriculum to ensure students learn basic American history, government, economics, and Western civilization. Hmm. I wonder how basic we're talking about American history here. Like, Song of the South, basic. Uh, also, they'll be teaching these courses at schools facing 50% budget cuts. But relax. We're going to really hit that Western civilization. Going to make sure we get that full year of Roman history. Uh, so so that's, that's a plus. Uh, they also are going to protect state pensions and taxpayers by converting state pensions from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans, a cash balance system, or a hybrid system. Now... That doesn't sound like protecting state pensions to me. If you look up those buzzwords, that sounds like converting state pensions into 401ks. But, you know, again, I'm just some guy on the Internet. Finally, in the government collection of union dues protects taxpayers from the inappropriate collection of union dues for state employees. So like teachers, you want it harder for teachers unions to raise money and to organize. Okay, those sound like common sense policies that will enrich the lives and health of Texans. So that's what Josh is doing nowadays. Uh, I do want to consider some feedback because I asked for people to send in their recommendations for places to get news from a more diverse perspective last episode, a.k.a. not some white guy on Swizzbold in his 40s. I got a lot of responses, many uh, which were more kind of general leftist resources, which I will get around to checking out and discussing as I have time. But one lady in particular had a lot of insightful links to share. Uh, you can send feedback to us by emailing 3RT at Swizzbold.com. Stacy C sent in a few podcast recommendations. She says, first up, yo, is this racist? This is hosted by two comedians and a weekly guest. They're all people of color where they take calls from listeners asking if things are racist. Spoiler alert, they almost always are. I found it to be eye-opening and learned it a lot. I haven't listened to them recently, but they were on a year or two back on the Dan Harmon, Jessica Gao, uh, Whiting Wong's project. Uh, and they, they are very funny. And it's, it's a great way to learn a lot about a minority perspective navigating American life. And they're very funny, but they're very frank. And, it, and as you said, Stacey, it's an eye-opener. Uh, Code Switch. This is an NPR-backed podcast that looks at a lot of different topics around race and identity. Topics range from the endangerment of the Hawaiian language to the origin of the welfare queen myth to school segregation. That's another good recommendation. She also wants to recommend Reveal. This is an investigative journalism-style podcast that looks at a lot of different topics impacting people of color, especially around systematic racism, sometimes not race-related but still covering untold stories. And uh, finally, Ear Hustle, stories from inside San Quentin Prison. This is another one I listen to a lot of, especially the early days of this podcast. Um, Stacy interjects, one of the hosts had a sentence commuted after the podcast started. So they're also looking at getting used to life on the outside. He was serving a life sentence due to California's three strikes law. It's another fact I got, I just recommended to me when I was talking about season three of serial, which I also highly recommend, which was an in-depth look at the, uh, 
uh, the justice system in one of the Cleveland County. I think it's Kai. I can't pronounce the name. I'm I'm, I'm not going to George W. Bush it. Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga County. Uh, and 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 they recommended it to me because I was fascinated by some of the stories of inside this justice system. And it's a it's a fascinating podcast. Uh, highly recommend it. So thanks, thanks for the sources, Stacy. Uh, again, if you're listening out there and you have other sources, again from a diverse perspective. Uh, send those in to three RT at swizzbold.com and I'm gonna I'm gonna start the a compilation of them. Next week on Swizzbold, Cecily and I will be returning to one weird trick with more advice on careers, life, and love. And two weeks from now, I'll be back to discuss the topic of whiteness in America. What does it mean to be white? What has it meant historically? And is whiteness under attack? Please send us feedback to 3RT at SwizzBold.com. Follow us at SwizzBold on all the social medias. Please support us on Patreon.com slash SwizzBold if you're able. And if not, consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or sharing us on social media. Until next time, thanks for listening. And hey, let's all resolve to crack open our Overton windows. This country is getting a little too stuffy and stale. Have a great week. 